you comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place on the web at maincf.org. Support for WERU also comes from Woodlawn Museum, Gardens, and Park, 180 acres of an estate located near downtown Ellsworth. 667-8671 or woodlawnmuseum.com. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. In the sweep of history since colonial times, our relationship with the landscape and with wildlife has changed many times. Where are we now when we seem to be encroaching on wildlife and wildlife seems to be encroaching on us? We're going to welcome in a moment uh, Jim Sturba. Jim is a Wall Street uh, Journal reporter, a part-time resident of Mount Desert Island, and his book uh, Nature Wars tells the story of how wildlife comebacks have turned our backyards into battlegrounds. And we'll be looking um, to Jim to give us some reports from the front as we seek peace with geese, turkeys, feral cats, white-tailed deer, and your favorite wildlife species. Later on in the hour, we'll open up our phone lines and hope that you'll participate in our conversation. But uh, now, welcome uh, Jim Sturba. Uh, glad to be here. Jim, tell us a little bit about uh, your your um, your career. As a journalist, um, you covered many wars, and then we'll talk about nature wars in, in a moment. But t- what got you into journalism? Uh, uh, I was a science student uh, growing up, and um, I uh, sat in a 500-seat lecture hall at Michigan State University and taking a geology course and was bored to tears uh, and decided to look around for something else and and, uh, got a job at the school paper, and that led to essentially a career in journalism. I started in Washington at the Evening Star, went to the New York Times in Washington, then to New York, then to Vietnam, then to, I stayed in Asia uh, for the Times for 14 years off and on, and then went to work for the Journal, uh, went back and forth to Asia a lot, and uh, uh, and then uh, in the mid-80s, interestingly, I went back to the farm that I grew up on in Michigan, and I looked around for the first time. I'd been back to see my parents, but I hadn't really looked at it and was amazed at the changes in the landscape. The, a lot of farmland was no longer being farmed. Young forests had grown up on that land. The good land was still being farmed. Uh, the pheasants that we used to see all the time when I was growing up were nowhere, 
and deer had come into this area. The deer used to be way up north, and we'd go deer hunting way up north. There were no geese or wild turkeys in those days, but there there were when I got back in the mid to late 80s. And so um, I thought, my goodness, um, uh, is this going on everywhere else? And I started writing stories for the for the Wall Street Journal uh, when I wasn't in Asia. They said, find something to cover that we need to have covered. And so I found these. And these stories were so counterintuitive. I love counterintuitive stories, stories that people can't believe is are true. Um, you know, the average person doesn't believe forests have grown up in our mists, just doesn't believe it. Um, how can this be possible? We're destroying forests all over the world. Well, we're not destroying them in, in around here. Because those are our backyards. We wouldn't want <laughs> forests to be destroyed in our backyards. Well, even even forest forests. Have, right. I mean, in Massachusetts has... I don't know, it's about 62 thirds forested, maybe more now, 70%, I think. And there's more, there are more, there's more official forest and more wood in the, those forests than there has been in 300 years. Mm. Um, and yet, Massachusetts gets less than 1 or 2% of its forest products from its own forests. Um, it gets its furniture wood from tropical rainforests, Borneo, and places like that. It gets its two by fours from from uh, tree farms and from boreal forests in Canada and so on. Um, so you'd really have to get up in an airplane and kind of um, have a snapshot from 1910, for, for instance, and a snapshot now to see some of these differences. The Harvard Forest uh, facility in Petersham has, has these wonderful dioramas of the landscape around that area every, uh, uh, every 50 or 100 years or so, and you can really see the changes in the land. And I was really, I bought Bill Cronin's book, Changes in the Land, and, and read it, and I was kind of blown away by that as mm -hmm. well early on. And that sort of propelled my research into uh, into, into the subject of reforestation. Um, and then Bill McKibben did a piece for The Atlantic. Um, uh, uh, I think it was 95, maybe 2005. I can't remember now, but uh, he was saying, you know, his book was the end of nature. But he was saying in the in the Northeast, in the in, uh, we, we have seen a regreening of the landscape that is unprecedented in the Americas, unprecedented, according to David Foster, uh, since the Mayan collapse 1,200 years ago, when the Central America reverted to jungle. So is part of that is our relationship with the landscape. And, and um, from colonial times on, we were clearing land. Um, cleared land meant that we um, were able to grow vegetables or, or our crops and, and have our, 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 our livestock. But it also was a pushing back of the wilderness, and you write about that in, in, in the book. Oh, absolutely. Wilderness was considered to be evil. Mm -hmm. I mean, the opposite of the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, we were duty bound uh, uh, to tame it and to the, tame the the wild beasts and wild men that lived there, and um, and we did a pretty good job of it over the over the first couple of centuries. Uh, we we cut down trees mostly to get them out of the way early on, so that we could farm. We uh, we uh, we we enlisted uh, Indians to trap. Um, uh, a d a to trap beavers and to kill deer for pelts and hides. And those essential commodities essentially paid for our exploration. The early, I mean, they were the currency that paid the bankers back for backing the 
the early uh, exploration of the continent. Mm. So um, take us forward, um, I suppose, colonial times to um, about Civil War times. We were still kind of clearing things away, especially in places like Maine. After the Civil War, um, in Maine anyway, um, that began to change. People moved off of the land. However, um, the huge numbers of immigrants poured in from Europe in the 19th century, and they had to be fed and clothed and all sorts of other things. And, and market hunters, commercial hunters, commercial uh, uh, killed anything with a value for, for meat, feathers, fur, uh, and, 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 and what you had in the last half of the 19th century was egregious killing of wildlife. I mean, it was called the era of extermination. It was so bad. That's when the buffalo were killed mm. in the plains and so mm. on. But while the buffalo were dying, so were the deer, so were the turkeys, so were the, the beavers had all been trapped out before most settlers got to any one place. So that, so that um, by the end of the 19th century, Maybe 30 million deer that were here when Columbus arrived had been reduced to less than half a million. Um, beavers were reduced to little pockets in the Canadian outback. And the Adirondacks, for example, had one family of five beavers. And those are the only beavers known to exist in the eastern third of the United States. Um, tens of millions of, 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 of turkeys and flocks of migrating geese and ducks that just covered the sky they were so numerous when when d during the early periods had been reduced to, to to remnants and on and on for all these species so it wasn't until the last after the civil war that uh with forests for example where in the northeast um the ohio valley opened up people went out there the erie canal in 1825 opened here they found th this fertile rock-free, flat relative. They drained the swamps, and they found this great land. So New England farmers couldn't compete. They began to abandon their land. They abandoned the worst, the hillside, the rocky, the, the unproductive soils. They couldn't compete for lots of crops. You could, you could ship grain from the Midwest through the Erie Canal and feed it to livestock in, 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 in New England. Uh, a lot cheaper than you could grow it in these short growing seasons in the in in New England. So, so um, um, in that way, the, the 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 land was abandoned and trees took it back. It's mm -hmm. amazing how how efficient forests are at regenerating themselves once you uh, once you uh, let the land go feral. Every time I drive up um, north to to go to the Allegash River, um, I'm just amazed at, at how much woody stock there is, um, whether it's um, brush or it's trees. The landscape is just covered, and, and it doesn't take long, as you say, for that recovery to take place. My favorite story is John Gordon, the, the head of the Yale Forestry Department. The, he's retired now, but he used to say Connecticut, which is two-thirds forested. Hmm. And a lot more would be forested if, if, if the Forest Service counted the land that people lived under. There are all sorts of trees in their mm -hmm. yards. and so. Anyway, so he said, if you look down on Connecticut in the summer when the leaves are on the trees, what you would see is almost unbroken forest. He said, if you wait until late fall when all the, the leaves have dropped off of those trees, what you'd see is mainly stockbrokers. Ha, ha, ha.
So, uh, Jim, when did things begin to, to shift? What was the public consciousness that, that uh, came that says this slaughter of, of wildlife, whether it's passenger pigeons or, or buffalo, was somehow troubling to people and we began to look at our policies? Um, George Perkins Marsh and Henry David Thoreau began to write about um, um, the destruction of deforestation, erosion, problems of um, of of uh, uh, problems essentially a fear that we we're going to run out of trees, we we're going to run out of wood. I mean, wood was the building block of this economy for mm. a long time. It it, it 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 was fuel for a long time. Animals. Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and people, uh, people in the late 19th century began to say, "Look, at, we've got to do something to, 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 to conserve what little is left of our wild heritage." And, and that's when the conservation movement began to kick in. And it didn't get teeth for decades and decades. Nobody wanted to obey. You know, poachers had every right they thought to go kill whatever they could find. Uh, people who were pioneers uh, had thought they had every right to go kill food for the family pot. So, I mean, it's, it's logical. Um, but a, a few laws began to be enacted to curtail market hunting, to, to say that you couldn't kill animals over here and cross state lines to sell them over here. And, and, and that was really the beginning of a, of a kind of national effort and a bunch of laws to get uh, the conservation, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, remember, created uh, refuges mm -hmm. to save uh, birds in, in, in Florida from plume hunters. Uh, plume hunters were taking egrets and pelicans, anything with an exotic feather, selling it to, 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 to people in New York who made women's hats. And, and this to him was egregious. And he, when he was elected governor of New York, he gave what has been called the first bird's rights speech, in which he said, we're not going to allow people to use these feathers to make women's hats or men's hats even in, in, in this state. Hmm. And um, uh, gradually uh, laws were enacted. The Migratory Bird Treaty was signed in, in 1918, which protected birds that crossed um, international boundaries, Canada and Mexico and the United States. Um, and... Um, um, interestingly, uh, in 19, not until 1935 did um, the, 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 the other Roosevelt administration outlaw the use of live decoy flocks of Canada geese. Mm. Canada geese were, the migratory flocks were decimated, mm. and, and, um, and most people don't know this, I don't think, but that uh, market hunters and gun clubs in the Chesapeake Bay and other places used not these Cabela uh, plastic decoys or wooden <laughs> hand-carved ones, but live birds right. to draw in other birds to be killed. And so um, when those flocks were outlawed, they were easy to spot, so they didn't have any use. And so you had literally tens of thousands of Canada geese that were from these live flocks that everyone was anxious to get a hold of, to restock refuges, states and federal refuges, because they wanted to bring these birds back. So they put them in refuges in New York and, and Maine and Connecticut, all sorts of places, and they expected these birds to join the migrating flocks again. But, of course, they didn't because the migrators 
migrate north to where they were born and learned how to fly. These geese were born locally. They learned right. how to fly locally. Right. They were already home. Right. So they didn't migrate. Uh -huh. And those are the geese that are causing people all sorts of problems on golf courses and soccer fields and airports. Remember what happened to Flight 1549 sure. in New York? Uh, th these are resident, essentially resident Canada geese. Their mortality is much lower because they don't expend right. energy. Right. Their predators are saved. Uh, they're they're safe from predators largely because, the, on a golf course, you have these great sight lines. You know, uh, on and on. So right. that that's a story that most people don't uh, understand. I don't think. We're talking with Jim Sturber here on Talk of the Towns. Jim is the author of Nature Wars, also a, a correspondent uh, reporter um, with the Wall Street Journal and uh, formerly New York Times. And his story is really about um, our culture <laughs> and how we relate to land and wildlife. So, Jim, the other thing that began to happen um, after Teddy Roosevelt kind of raised people's awareness was that um, authors like uh, Jack London, I suppose, uh, came into the picture. His stories of wildlife and nature. He was not, he was not born in, in Alaska, but he certainly made a, a, a career of talking about the Yukon. And then um, later on, movies um, um, began to tell stories of wildlife that changed our perception from being um, that's our source of, of food on the on the, on our plates to something we ought to take care of in a different way. Sure, um, we began to see animals as as uh, creatures with uh, with with. Um, with uh, sentient values. Um, London wrote and Long wrote about, even wrote about their thoughts and feelings. We anthropomorphized them. Um, they became uh, uh, human almost, human-like qualities. And the other thing that happened was that we uh, moved off of the landscape. In 1850, two-thirds of us worked outdoors. Mm. And now 90% of us live indoors in our cars, offices, or homes. And 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 we we get our nature indirectly, as you said, from books, way back in the beginning of the 20th century, from movies. Bambi came out in in what 1922 or 30. I can't remember now, right. but it's been around all those years. And the only bad guy in that movie is man. Right. Man is the ogre, the hunter, and and um, and he. Uh, 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 and then movie television came along, Zoo Parade and Wild Kingdom. Remember, right, sure. Um, and 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 this, the other thing that that began to happen was that was that it, just in the last few decades is that pets, you know, dogs and cats had jobs in the old days on the farms, and then, right. then they became pets, and then they became um, uh, companion animals, and now they're members of the family. And mm. at the same time, wildlife, um, uh, we we on TV uh, and in movies uh, uh, have these uh, anthropomorphized characteristics. And as a result, um, people, what I say in the book, became denatured. They, 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 um, they, uh, uh, and they didn't see what was happening around them. They didn't see the forest coming back. They did, and they didn't see until, I mean, just the last few decades, wildlife coming back. And, and they, the other thing that they did was to move wholesale from cities and towns into suburbs and exurbs and sprawl. By 1960, we were about one-third urban, one-third rural, one-third suburban. By 2000, 
and by the 2000 census, an absolute majority of the American people lived not in cities, not on working farms, but in this vast mm. middle muddle in right. between. And that is an interesting, that's a very interesting landscape. Because, because we're creating places where wildlife want to be. We're creating all these wonderful habitats. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we put out food, we put out, um, uh, 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 we give them protection hiding places, edges, we protect them from predators. And, and our gardens um, are, are kind of um, you know, places, buffets. Really. Our, 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 <laughs> our mulch piles, our garbage cans. Right. As I tell my friends, if you happen to find yourself in an unsecured dumpster at 3 o'clock in the morning, your chances are you won't be alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, what, what uh, these conflicts began to emerge, um, and you began to see these stories as a, as a reporter. Um, and I suppose it's even intensified since the, the Internet has allowed you to see these stories happen. You don't have to go to places to see these conflicts. You're seeing them all the, all the time. I started in the 80s um, um, uh, writing stories about deer. Um, I, and I saw places where hunting, which was this the, the North American model of wildlife conservation was developed essentially to, con, to grow, protect, and nurture wild populations back to health and then use hunters and trappers as surrogates to control mm -hmm. their uh, – I mean, and, and imagine a system where somebody pays the state to get a license to do what the state wants to be done. And this was working, and it works well, and it still works well in lots of places, mostly rural areas. But it, it started to break down in the sprawl. It started to break down in places where, um, uh, it, where, where there's sentiment against hunting, sentiment against trapping as cruel, inhumane, um, and simply for safety reasons. You know, we don't want a bunch of yahoos in the backyard mm. shooting up uh, things, and uh, we don't want our children and dogs running around with arrows sticking out of them. Actually, hunters are quite safe, but we can talk about that later Later on. Right. I mean, deer now kill more people than hunters do uh, 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 and put 30,000 in the hospital a year when deer car crashes. But uh, so... So these um, 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 issues just began to bubble into my reporting, and I, and I began to see these stories and write about them. And, and, but remember, seeing a deer was quite rare in some places it, it, well into the 60s and mm. 70s, mm. And, and, um, and you didn't get densities of, of you know, 60, 80, 100 deer per square mile. You should, in a normal, unpeopled area, agriculture or forest, 10 to 15 deer per square mile is about mm. average, above 20, and they start to, they start to, to create problems uh, with their habitat. But imagine 60, 80, or more than 100 mm. in, in, in the sprawl. Um, um, I have friends in the Forest Service and botanists who say that in the north, all over the eastern United States, deer are degenerating forest ecosystems with their browsing habits mm -hmm. and creating problems for other animals. Um, birds that live in the understory, for example, mm -hmm. of the forest. You eat out the understory. There's no hiding. There's no place for the insects. Baby birds eat insects. They don't eat seed. So the, the parents have to find insects. And if the forest understory is eaten out, the insects are, 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 are rare or, or downgraded. The, 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 uh, the birds have a problem. And so 
Audubon and others list threatened species um, related to deer overbrowsing, for mm. example. So this notion, um, as 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 a science student, you saw everything being connected. As a reporter, you're seeing everything being connected, and that's part of the problem. The fact that we we um, value wildlife um, for our our kind of visual pleasure, but we don't necessarily see the connection to what they're doing to the rest of the of the landscape. Oh yeah, I mean, you if you ask people who i mean first of all this is a this is a wonderful problem to have mm. the notion that we have over this is a success story mm. an extraordinary success story this i mean we're one of the rare places on the planet that has where this has occurred and 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 what i say in the book is that it's probable that more people in the eastern United States live in closer proximity to more trees, wild birds, and animals than anywhere on the planet at any time in history. Mm. I mean, Africa's got more people than animals, but it's huge. I mm. mean, we, mm. we, because we live in the sprawl, are closer to these populations. Mm. And we love them. I mean, deer are beautiful. They're mm-hmm. majestic creatures. But once they reach, once they start you know, they reach what's called a social caring capacity, where the the perceived problems that they cause outweigh the good in people's minds. Then you began to have these fights in which th- these creatures and others get demonized, and then you have to figure out what to do with them. And those fights go on endlessly. It doesn't so, matter what the creature is. So we're talking with Jim Sturb about his book, uh, Nature Wars. And, and uh, Jim, in the book, you describe East Burbia. Um, and it's it's how it, it treats its deer problem, and we don't have to go very far to see um, the the uh, kind of mirror to East Burbia in every community. But tell us how East Burbia handles the deer problem. Well, this is a theoretical town, sure, of course, sure. and it, and I realize even more after I the book was published that this these fights are going on in literally hundreds, if not thousands, of communities around the country. And, you know, somebody will say, gee, there's a lot of deer around here. My wife just hit one with her SUV. Well, maybe we should do something. And the, and the, um, the, the, the town fathers pick up on this, and in the name of good government, they schedule an open meeting, and shouting starts immediately, and people say, how can you think about killing these beautiful creatures, or what should we do? Do we have too many deer? How many deer do we have? Nobody really knows. Maybe we should hire a helicopter infrared to find out how many deer we have. Cost five thousand dollars. Do we want to spend that? Um, somebody else says, um, um, you know, they're eating my garden. They, they, they. Uh, my kids can't play in the lawn. There's so many ticks, and so on. And so, the shouting ends at the first meeting, and the the the, the town fathers realize that this is a political hot potato because the town is already dividing. Save Bambi, kill Bambi, you know, uh, or do something in between. And so they do what a lot of uh, town fathers do. They hire a consultant. The consultant, they say, study our deer problem, tell us what to do, but wait six months until after the next election and then come back. <laughs> and, um, and so he comes back with his $15,000 study and he says, we got, you have too many deer. You have, um, you know, 80 per square mile or whatever. You ought to, you ought to, essentially, you ought to kill somebody. He doesn't use the K word because that's a bad word. He says you ought to institute a, 
a program of human-induced mortality. <laughs> uh, somebody says, wait a minute, what about birth control? Well, you know, birth control has been around the corner just over the horizon 25 years ago, and it still is. You know, with free-roaming herds, it just doesn't work. You can surgically sterilize deer by darting the does, and then, uh, but it costs $1,200 per, per doe. East Hampton just decided, the East Hampton Village, to do that. Uh, Cayuga Heights in Ithaca, New York, uh, uh, has done the same thing. But you, you have to have deep pockets as taxpayers to be able to, to do that. Whereas, And the same guy who, who will surgically sterilize them for 1200 will call them for you know two or 300 I, I see Mount Desert studied, or uh, Bar Harbor studied, and they... They say culling them costs 600 per deer. I, that seems a bit high for me, but there may be special circumstances. I don't know. Anyway, so the fights go on. Um, somebody says, um, uh, what about sharpshooters? Let's bring them in. No, they're just mercenaries. We don't want them. Because hunters want to come in. Bow hunters want to come in and get exclusive territory to hunt. They promise to do it really cheaply. Sometimes they're okay. Sometimes they're very inefficient. Uh uh, and then someone says, here's my favorite, let's bring back natural predators. Um, there are a lot of deer predators, but the main deer predators are cougars and mountain lions, um, uh, uh, the four-legged ones, that is. And they're coming back. You know, they're, they're going to be around, but do you, do you want to share your neighborhood with them? When or now? Right. Uh, and, 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 but I say there's one other predator that's worth mentioning, and that's us. Mm. And, and people don't realize that... Um, that um, some studies suggest that the biggest deer predator of all is what is us, and the fact that man killed more deer since the end of the last ice age than all other predators combined. You do mm. midden studies right. and all sorts of uh, that kind of research. And if that's true, look what's happened in the sprawl. We've papered the sprawl with no hunting signs and anti-firearms restrictions. We, we've put huge swaths of the eastern United States essentially off limits to its biggest predator just in the last few decades. Mm. For the first time in 11,000 years, um, the biggest predator of white-tailed deer has kind of got out, gotten out of the predation business. Not, not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still 10 million deer hunters, and they kill about 6 million deer, but that's not nearly enough in the sprawl to... I mean, the rule of thumb is that, unfortunately... Um, you have to eliminate two-thirds of the females in any given herd just to stabilize the population, just to stop it from growing. Mm. I mean, that's not happening. So the, the, the early kind of game laws that um, helped uh, bring hunters into the equation of managing deer populations, that no longer exists because we can't hunt in those areas where people are living and finding the conflicts. They're, they're beginning to, as, as these problems get worse, there are beginning to be changes in laws. Uh, in Massachusetts, for example, you can't, in a lot of states, you can't, you can't discharge a firearm within 150 feet of a hard surface road or 500 feet of an occupied dwelling without the occupant's written permission, which isn't easy to get. Those two laws alone put essentially two-thirds of Massachusetts mm. off limits to hunting. Mm. And then there are all these little... Uh, municipal laws, uh, some against bow hunting and so mm -hmm. on, because people are just against hunting. And, and um, so these are beginning to change. Um, um, 
So there are some setback restrictions in in eastern Long Island, for example, where you could bow hunt within a hundred within a hundred or fifty feet of a of a dwelling or a road. And and as as these problems grow, these changes, but they're really slow to happen. And um, and as the problems get worse, though, they're gonna ha- they're gonna they're gonna. But but remember, deer hunters are declining. Sure. Um, they're aging. Kids don't want to hunt much. Uh, although there is, there's the beginning of a movement in that direction. Foodies, for example, uh, the whole idea of eating wild game is is attractive. You see these celebrity chefs on TV uh, uh, doing venison cuts mm. and other wild birds and so on. So, so that's beginning to have an impact. But it's really small, and, and but it's interesting to watch. Well, and we certainly um, still have um, food uh, problems in our in our communities. Um, some people don't have food, and and so some communities, I think, in your book and, and more recent writing, are figuring out ways to get game into food pantries and and other places where people need need food. Here's the real. Here's one of the great uh, uh, solutions, I think, and that and yes, now. Uh, hunters for the hungry donate f- food to food pantries and so on. But what would happen if you, in these communities where you have lots of locavore farmers and guys who like to sell, lo- raise and sell local stuff, what would happen if, if you trained local people to call the deer? Uh, you hired the sharpshooters the first year, but they not only killed deer, but they trained local people. You know, they're usually hunters in a community, firemen, policemen, and and other people you train them to do the calls the right way and there is a right way and a wrong way uh, and 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 then to recoup some of your cost you sold the venison at local farmers markets i mean free range antibiotic free <laughs> uh um this is the per, uh, lean grass fed i mean every every label you want every good label you want to attach venison has and and it's you know, it's tender. It's just, but you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon because one of the tenets of the North American model, and it's ingrained in every wildlife state wildlife biologist's mind, is one. It's like a commandment: "Thou shalt not sell wild game." Because of those earlier because, market because hunting. Because that's what, got, market that's what destroyed right. them. So right. I mean, there's a giant loophole. Trappers can sell their pelts now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is wiggle room to right. get this. And the, for the first time, the Wildlife Society Bulletin did an article in 2011 about like, should we consider this heretical thought. Mm. Since then, it's gotten some traction, uh, but it's – I mean, you need some state to step up and let's let's try this in a suburb. Let's see if we can make it work. And one or two, New Jersey, a a senator there who heard about it, wanted to introduce a bill. I don't think it went anywhere. But, you know, this is a way of making use of a – remember, 85% of the venison that we eat in restaurants and meat markets comes from New Zealand. Right, and farmed, I mean, farmed. Yeah, it's farmed in right, New Zealand. Right. I mean, what? That's ridiculous. <laughs> We're talking with Jim Sturba, who is the author of Nature Wars. Uh, let's open up our phone lines. If you've got a comment or a question, uh, go ahead and give us a call at one eight six six seven two nine two eight eight. 
625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. In our conversation about sharing the landscape, people and wildlife. We've talked about deer, Jim, but uh, um, there's other species too. Just um, your book talks a little bit about the commercialization of bird watching. <laughs> a fascinating story where um, birds are, are kind of indoor uh, outdoor pets and we're feeding them in massive, massive um, <laughs> ways. And, and this is I mean, I can't remember what the number is, $5 billion a year or something, but um, uh, this was a wedge into getting people to reconnect to nature. You put a bird feeder out, and you, mm. you can be a couch potato nature watcher just mm-hmm. and watch the birds that come to the feeder. And, of course, other things come to the feeder. And so the people who sell pet products and services and bird seeds see this as a great um, – uh, a, a great way to, to to introduce the notion of outdoor pets. Why can't mm. wild creatures be outdoor pets? And, of course, they're thinking and create a wildlife sanctuary in your backyard. The National Wildlife Federation um, create – and they're, they're saying birds, frogs, bunnies, you know, cardinals. And then the bear shows up or the skunk shows up or the porcupine shows up. Then what do you do? Well, there's another industry over here called the nuisance <laughs> wildlife control industry that it's, it's on call – for, for big bucks to come and take your problem animal and do something with it. So you got two industries managing nature in your backyard. Great, great. Well, let's take a phone call and see where our listeners want to take this conversation. Um, if you'd like to give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Well, my name is Ivor, and I'm on Swan's Island, but also Skowhegan. I live in Skowhegan most of the year. And I just wanted to uh, have uh, your uh, commentator comment on the issue that's happening now in Maine um, with the, the bears, and, and I know that the bear population is way up because they're eating a lot of Twinkies and things, and uh, what he thinks about the way that we've kind of like puffed up the bear population, and now they're talking about getting rid of baits and traps, and I don't know, I just uh, see what he thinks about that. Okay, let's, let's, um, let's take a second phone call, and then we'll see where this, this takes us. So, Jim, think about the, the, the bear hunt question, but let's take a second phone call and see where our guests would li- I mean, our listeners would like us to go. If you'd, again, list your first name and the town you're calling from, please, and then go ahead. Hi, this is Daryl DeJoy calling from Penobscot. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how are you doing today? This is, this is also about bears, but also on a broader spectrum, uh, predators in general, because we've it seems that Jim is uh, talking around the fact that we have massive predator control programs. Um, and, and here in Maine, I, I can largely speak about Maine uh, because I live here and, and deal with wildlife here. But the fact that, uh, you know, there's a huge predator control program when it comes to coyotes, and coyotes here do control the deer population, as do bear. Um, and, uh, you know, we are feeding tremendous amounts of anthropogenic human food to bears, teaching them that human food is acceptable, and uh, we're teaching them to come into our backyards. I'm, I myself in Penobscot have seen five bears this spring. Um, so that is, I'd like him to respond to that. Great. Thanks so much for your both your calls. Um, uh, so, Jim, as a reporter, how would you tend to cover this question of, of, of you know, bear hunts and, and uh, what's happening in Maine? What I did uh, for the Wall Street Journal uh, was to write a story about the first bear initiative when uh, 
Humane Society of the United States and others came in and wanted to stop uh, bear baiting and bear hounding and and just talked about both sides. The the inland fisheries and wildlife people said, if we don't, this is the only way we can kill enough bears to control. And if you feed them all this this junk food in the woods, um, uh, um, their sort of territorial. Uh, I mean, they may show up at somebody's backyard, but the population up there is sort of isn't very dense people-wise. In the South, um, ha- however, you know, if you if you train bears to to associate the smell of people not with fear but with food, you're training them to do. They're going to hang around, and the best example I can give is. A, a couple of months ago, I gave a talk to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, and and the weekend I went to Tallahassee, the, the, the Florida wildlife people had to kill six bears, Florida black bears, which were, were just 20 years ago a threatened species. And the reason they did it is because people were feeding the bears. And, and <clears throat> this is a, you know, you shouldn't feed wildlife, period. But again, going back to bird seed and stuff, where people think in their minds they're encouraging well, what about a what about a dog biscuit for the coyote? You know, uh, uh, you, you you you're you're sending the wrong signals to these animals, and and I I, I think it's a problem. I I think that um, uh, coyotes do kill uh, uh, deer, mostly fawns. Bear bears kill kill fawns too, um, and that um, these. Uh, you know, wildlife services programs that I know of from the West when I was living and reporting out there, um, killing coyotes massively to protect cattle and sheep uh, 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 herds uh, from 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 them. Uh, you know, you would. the The problem is, what do you do in the sprawl areas where you have wildlife encroaching on people and people encroaching on wildlife. And I think there you have to have some rules. I mean, I suggested in Florida that that you have some serious fines, maybe even jail time, because the bear ends up dead. Mm. Two strikes against the bear, and they, they, they euthanize the bear. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's not the bear's fault, it's the people's fault. So I say punish the people. I mm. mean, how are you going to do that? Council Bluffs, Iowa, recently has tabled a, a a law which hasn't been enacted yet, suggesting a $850 fine and uh, for feeding wild turkeys, because you're training the turkeys to hang around too, and you don't want to do that. And so, I think the the laws and the rules have to be adjusted for where you are. And I mean, the main wildlife people say we can't control the bear population unless we allow these things to happen. Well, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to see. If you couldn't control them, within a few years, you'd have all sorts of people complaining, just like what happened in Massachusetts when they outlawed trapping uh, uh, beavers in uh, in, in foothold and uh, conibear bear uh, traps. The beaver population, which was about 20,000, um, within a few years was up to 60,000. And, and and people all over the place were complaining that beavers were flooding their their wells, their sewer systems, their drainages, their roads. They were chewing down trees. They were, and 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 mass wildlife people had you know just wiped their hands of the whole thing, turned it over to the local health boards, mm. which could authorize the use of in special occasions of these banned traps. 
and did. And uh, so the problem, essentially, beavers were being killed just like in the old days, but it went underground and it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And and but people still complain. Bears are 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 uh, you know their their populations grow just like other big predators. When they grow, they spread, and when they spread, they spread into where people are. And mm-hmm. since people, since half of our population lives in the sprawl, they're spreading into where we are, including where where we go for weekends in Dutchess County. Um, um, uh, th- and and so this problem is going to grow, and I don't know really what the solution is unless it starts with training people that that what they put out for wildlife is pr- probably not a good idea, and that you ought to at least take your bird feeders in um, mm. in bear season. This is a talk of the towns. We're talking with uh, author Jim Sturba about Nature Wars, his book about um, the encroachment of wildlife on people and people on wildlife. Give us a call if you'd like, one 625 9378 Jim, um, it seems to me that you're talking a little bit about what's our, our responsibility living in in the world that we live in and how do we uh, how are we going to be responsible citizens um, but I think we have a call first so we'll come back to that let's take a, f- a phone call first go ahead uh, if you'd list your first name and, and the town you're calling from and then go ahead with your question or comment please hi this is Claire and I'm right now I'm calling from Bruce head great I'm in my in my car uh-huh um, I've been listening to the show and thing is I'm thank you for doing this one great. Uh, I have two two points I'd like to mention, and um, for me, I think um, culling the animals for food sale is an option um, when they're when they're in a problem area. But in the overall state, I think we really have to consider um, a balance of the natural predators first, and um, make sure you've got a good um, balance going there and then do the culling for the food secondary when it's necessary. And I say that because coyotes um, in our state are being exterminated on a continuous basis. And where I live in Liberty, um, I used to hear them and we all enjoyed them and we had no problems with them. And now we haven't heard a coyote in six years. Uh, There's a whole band of people up there that are killing them with hound dogs nonstop. It's wrong. And I hold the, our Inland Fish and Wildlife Department accountable for that. Um, and something needs to be done there. Um, that's, there's no excuse for that. Hmm. And um, they, they need to represent all sports people, not just the main guys with hunting camp. Um, our our Keystone carnivores is so important in this issue. So um, that's my two cents. Great. Thanks so much for your call, Claire. So this notion of, of uh, making sure that predators that, that um, uh, would feed on deer or other wildlife that are, are pests, we ought to make sure that they're present. John. It depends on what our goal is. Right. If our goal is to uh, increase the deer herd for some reason or another, say hunters wanting it, then... Um, uh, the, the, the certain things that uh, inland fisheries and wildlife can do to do that, like kill coyotes. If if you want a natural, if you want a balance, if you want coyotes to be killing deer, which um, uh, or just to have a healthy coyote population. I mean, this is remember this is a creature that 
comes out of the high plains of the of the uh, of the of the Midwest. This is not a, a, this creature has been around, but it's not. It, it wasn't around in the old days. It was supplying. I mean, it. it but wolves it, were. Yeah, wolves were, and they and as they, as I say, they're a major deer predator. They count on killing deer to eat, right. and they're gradually moving. But what about man, the carnivore, man, the sure. deer predator? We're so so. If if game departments are trying to encourage deer because that's where some of their revenues come from, um, deer are hunted in in northern Maine, but there's not as many in northern Maine per acre as there are in in the suburban areas. There's this imbalance going on. Uh, absolutely, and and in my state, Michigan, it's really I I have a whole chapter about how that happened in Michigan. We used to hunt deer up north in Michigan when I was a kid, and the reason we did is because the pine trees were all cut down out there, and the browse, the food, just you know, young uh, browse just grew up in that mm. space, and the and deer just the population just boomed, and and um, it became. Uh, 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 it became the thing to do. And then in, just in the last 20 or 30 years, the deer moved south because because that's it's because that was their historic range. Mm. But now the south, the southern third of Michigan is full of people, people and deer living together. And people, Michigan hunters want to go up north and hunt deer because that's where they all, that's where their grandfathers right. did. That's where we did and so on. Whereas the deer are, you know, you could hunt them off your porch if it was legal. Right. I mean, what I do is not really hunting anymore. I, 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 I consider myself a, a, a wildlife a, a ecosystem manager. And at the beginning of opening day of deer season in Dutchess County, New York, I walk 10 minutes up over a hill into a backfield, either sit in a tree, sit under a tree, or in a tree stand. And usually I have a deer, uh, a large doe, because does are, 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 are the, the population... Uh, 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 increasers mostly bucks are serial breeders so does I, I have it in the pickup by about 45 minutes after the season open that's not hunting that's just that's that's right. something else and 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 um, I I don't know about this business of 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 thinking that nature balances itself and that our place is to just let it alone get out of it and so on. I say my bottom line in the book is that we have, as a keystone species, as a as a top, uh, 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 we we have the ability and the obligation to manage the landscape on for the benefit of all the creatures, animal, plants, and even pe- people, and that and that we're probably better at it than deer, and and maybe even better at it than other things, um, and that. Uh, uh, we created the notion of wilderness. We created national parks. Mm. We, uh, y- you know, in order for Acadia to become a national park, it had to be without people. And by then, the, the Native Americans who had been visiting there for thousands of years were all gone up north. Yosemite, we kicked out. We sent the cavalry in to kick out the people <laughs> so that it would be, quote, wilderness right. and a national park. It would qualify to be a national park. Um, we have to realize that people have been managing their landscape. Indians, Native American, Paleo-Americans have been managing their landscape for the, the reasons they wanted to f- f- since we've been here. Hmm. Indians burned the forest understories to create sight lines to get rid of mosquitoes, to to let browse grow so that there was food for 
um, for deer or turkeys, the other things that they ate and wore. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're ubiquitous on the landscape now, and, and we can't just leave it alone and say nature will balance itself. I mean, um, th that was thinking that went on in the past, but I mean, ecologists now tell me that the, 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 the only constant in nature is change, mm. and that a fire, a flood, something's gonna come along and disrupt your little landscape, and that includes people. And we've certainly did enough disrupting, but um, we, you know, we can also do good things to help all of these creatures. So, Jim, as we as we begin to wind down, um, what are the signs of hope? Um, we mentioned um, some experiments with uh, uh, wild game and and uh, 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 food pantries or or local uh, farmers markets. Are there other signs of hope that you see in terms of where people are are wrestling with this um, honest problem and coming up with some things that might work? Um, first, the bad news. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. There's still a whole huge educational process that we have to go through to, so that people realize that, that, um, uh, that some of the things that they're doing are not in the best interest of the ecosystems in which they inhabit. So even though we're living inside, <laughs> indoors, we still have this responsibility for what's happening out, out, outdoors. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and people are learning. Um, uh, these programs uh, are, uh, for example, uh, fights over geese, uh, beavers, turkeys, bears in Florida and Maine and Alaska and so on, um, and, the, the, especially, and especially deer because they're so ubiquitous now, uh, are going on in, as I said, hundreds, maybe thousands of communities. And, 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 and uh, some people I know at Cornell are trying to set up a system whereby towns and, and, and other communities can go on the Internet and find out what other communities have done about mm. their problem, whether it's deer or geese, um, or, or or other creatures and and most of the towns that start these fights don't realize that they that they went on 20 years ago at the Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts or, or Princeton Township in Princeton New Jersey or that there's one starting tomorrow in in some other little town and 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 this town over here is five years ahead in thinking about what to do or or fighting or litigating I mean there's a lot of litigation and what to do about these creatures because People have become species partisans. You, mm. They divide up over their favorite creature, and and uh, uh, but but people are gradually learning, and that's a hopeful sign. Let's take one more uh, phone call. Go ahead briefly with your um, uh, first name, where you're calling from, and your question or comment, please. Uh, Liz from Belfast, and I just wanted to comment on humans as predators <laughs> yes. and how important that is. Uh -huh. And um, I feel very good about eating game. But people look at me, but they would buy food that's raised in a stockyard where animals really did have suffering. And I was wondering if you would speak to that and the damage that's done by how we get meat mm. in other ways. Great. Thanks for your Thank call. Thank you. Jim, a brief comment? Yeah, there's all sorts of problems. I mean, the USDA says that if you're going to sell deer, you, you have to, there should be an inspector where the deer was killed. Well, how are you going to have an inspector out with it? So there's got to be some changes in the rules. But, but, um, but I think the callers is, is right that there is, that, that, that there is interest and it's growing in, and it's part of the locavore food movement to, 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 
to eat wildlife. And, mm. and uh, you know, some of it's better than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and, and in terms of your point that uh, venison coming from New Zealand is certainly not helping our green footprint, um, or carbon footprint, I suppose. So we've got all these deer. We ought to make use of them in some way that, that uh, um, makes sense. I, I mean, animal rights people will tell you you shouldn't kill any animals. But uh, the other, uh, on the other side of that coin is that these are... Th- these are usable. These, this is wise use uh, resources, and that um, um, and that if the wise use resource con- con- coincides with the ecosystem management, then it's not a bad way to go. Mm. Jim, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, Jim Serba is the author of Nature Wars, the incredible story of how wildlife comebacks turn backyards into battlegrounds. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Jim Sturba, um, author of Nature Wars, for being with us this morning. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from the Hamden Farmers Market, providing local